Um, full disclosure, today's sermon is a bit different um, than our typical sermon. Next week, um, Pastor Richard is kicking off a new series. Um, but I wanted to talk um, for a moment about our national situation and particularly in relationship to politics. And I felt that the Sunday following July 4th and before I went on vacation was a good time to do that. Um, someone came up to me after service and said, well, you managed to make everyone upset. And so I was like, I think that's a win. Um, not long after President Trump was elected, actually it was the week after he was elected, someone confronted me in the lobby of the church, someone who's never been back, um, and they said, why didn't you see this coming and how could you have let this happen? Now, I, I, I have maybe, I don't know, a small amount of influence over what happens at the table church, although I don't even feel I have that much influence over what happens at the table church. And so I, my first reaction is I just wanted to let them know exactly how powerless I was um, with anything that happened nationally, and Trump was not my fault, but I decided just to listen. Um, and uh, they, they continued to go on about, you know, how did you not see this happening, or how did you not see this, and essentially, why did you not warn us? And I wanted to say there were people much smarter than me that didn't see this coming and didn't warn us, um, but I just listened. And as I listened, I realized essentially what she was trying to say was, why didn't you speak more prophetically leading up to this moment, right? It, we eventually, we could see that there was something coming down the pike that this person felt was bad for our country. Why didn't you speak more prophetically? And, and I think one of the, it raises an interesting question. And the question is this, what is the responsibility of a Jesus follower? Or what is the responsibility of a church? Or what is the responsibility of a pastor when they're faced with a moment where there might, where, there, where, where we feel there is an injustice um, or maybe a moral crisis? Or put more simply, how should followers of Jesus engage in politics? And this question is complicated by the fact that Christians don't all agree on what is a moral crisis or what is an injustice. Because what you feel is the great moral crisis of our time could be diametrically, in fact, I know is diametrically opposed to what somebody else considers to be the great moral crisis of our time. And so as your pastor, I do my best to try to be prophetic, but with a measured tone, and to do my best to stay out of partisan squabbles. Because whether you know this or not, right, people on both sides try to create controversy often just to get you to, to give money. I mean, if you're on any like email, candidate's email list every week, it is the end of the world and you can help stop the end of the world by donating $5 on a reoccurring basis, right? Like that's how it kind of works. But at the same time, it does seem that our national discourse is becoming more polarized and people on both sides seem to be increasingly alarmed and entrenched in their viewpoint. The right feels as they're under attack for their beliefs by particularly the media and the broader culture and there's a real concern um, uh, that there is a loss of religious freedom and religious liberty. And, and there's probably some truth to that on the, on the other side, the left feels as if white nationalism is kind of winning the day and that democracy as we know it be, may be at risk. And there's probably some truth to that. 
but, but what, what the problem is, is in the moment that we currently face, it is increasingly hard to hold to middle ground. Because both sides are saying, in fact, I've heard these exact words out of people's mouth, this is not the moment in history where you can hold the middle. You have to pick a side. You have to choose. Which side of history are you going to be on? History demands it. The future demands it. And what's happening in the process is a coarsening of our dialogue and a demonization of our opponent. People on the other side don't simply have a bad idea, they're bad people. And this has been happening for a while, but I think it has gotten worse in over the past few, honestly, over the past few years. Like, what we are facing now, the, the coarsening of the national dialogue has been, um, the temperature has been turned up, particularly because of some rhetoric on Twitter from a particular person. But um, this has been happening for a while. And then in the middle of all this chaos, and this is where I'm headed, in the middle of all this chaos, um, the administration makes a decision, and you can argue, you know, they, they felt they had strong points, makes a decision to begin separating children from their families at the border. And, and what, something really interesting happened. People who uh, kind of disagree with what the moral crisis of our country was, at least in the faith community, Christians all come together and say, whoa, 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 I think we've gone too far. Like, I was really amazed at some of the voices that came out and said, like, this is wrong. But into this mix and into this conversation, the Attorney General quotes the Bible. And he quoted in particular a passage from Romans 13 about respecting governmental authorities. And it seems to best I can tell, he was like, seriously, just chill out. This is my job. This is the government's job. Just, you need to step back and respect authority. So as I was thinking about what I wanted to say today, I thought a good starting place would be to go back and read the passage that he had read, Romans 13, 1 through 7. And, and what I want to come to you and tell you today is how poorly he misread the passage and how, what a terrible exegetical job the Attorney General did because it turns out he's, he studied law, not theology. But turns out he's not that far off of what Paul says, which is a bit troubling. So I'm going to read through Romans 13, 1 through 7. But then what I want to do, because what I discovered is just, this is just like a, this is a side note, this is a throwaway comment, but anytime you are reading a passage of scripture, you should really read what precedes it and what follows it. Because scripture was not written with chapter and verse divisions. It, this, the letter we're going to read is a letter to the church in Rome, which is in the capital city of the empire. But Paul writes a letter. He does not write the scripture. So there is no chapter 12, verse 7, and chapter 13, verse 1. There's just a letter. And so it's important when you read any passage in scripture, because no scripture ever had chapter and verse until we added it later so we could find it. It's important to read what proceeds and what follows. And what I discovered while reading what is honestly a disturbing passage is that Paul has some really poignant words for how we, people, wherever you find yourself on this on the political spectrum, how we should engage. But let's, let's start with the troubling stuff. Romans 13, verse 1. We're reading today out of the Common English Bible because I really like um, the way that they phrase some of the things, some of Paul's words. 
Paul writes, verse 1, every person should place themselves under the authority of the government. I'm already nervous. There isn't any authority unless it comes from God, and the authorities that are there have been put in place by God. I have a ton of whatabouts, right? We could just go to the, the go-to. What about Hitler? So you're telling me, Paul, that Hitler is in, was an authority because God placed him in authority? So anyone who opposes the authority is standing against what God has established, and people who take this kind of stand will get punished. So come again, Paul. Like if we are to stand against any governmental authority, right, we are standing against what God has established. And then he says this. The authorities don't frighten people who are doing the right thing. Rather, they frighten people who are doing the wrong thing. Would you rather not be afraid of the authority? Now, this is really, this is, this is rich because Paul, like, his life has been turned upside down by a guy by the name of Jesus. And as a refresher, Jesus was killed by the Roman authorities. Paul, a few years after he writes these words, is killed by the Roman authorities. But here Paul says, the authorities don't frighten people who are doing the right thing. So Paul, are you doing the wrong thing? Was Jesus doing the wrong thing? Rather, they frighten people who are doing the wrong thing. Would you rather not be afraid of governmental authorities? Do what's right and you will receive its approval. It is God's servant for your benefit. But if you do what's wrong, be afraid because it, it doesn't have weapons to enforce the law for nothing. It is God's servant put in place to carry out his punishment on those who do what is wrong. It's God's servant? Governmental authorities? He doesn't delineate, just governmental authorities. If they're in power, you're God's servant. And this is why it is necessary to place yourself under the government's authority. Not only to avoid God's punishment, but also for the sake of your conscience. Then Paul goes on about why you should pay taxes and who you should owe uh, debt to. There is a ton to unpack here. And there's all these questions I want to ask Paul. M most prominently is this idea that you don't have anything to fear from governmental authorities unless you do something wrong. Like, I have a few examples of times you, you have something to fear even when you're doing something right. And so now is the, the part of the sermon where I, I do my best to try to rescue Paul's words and figure out what he is saying because it doesn't align with much of the rest of not only Paul's words, but Jesus' words and the early church. The early church is constantly coming in, is having a clash with the governing authorities because there is an inherent subversive nature to the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ always causes us to come up against the governing authorities because they claim ultimate authority and God claims ultimate authority and we are forced to choose an allegiance. And this is the question that the early church is faced with early on. Is your allegiance to Rome and to Caesar or is your allegiance to God as king? And they always chose God. And the Roman authorities killed them. But here's what I think is going on. Actually, someone after service had a really good suggestion. They're like, wasn't Paul writing these words um, like from a time when he was personally under threat? Maybe he's just like throwing a bone to the Roman government. Maybe. But here's what I think is going on. Number one, this passage is quite subversive. Because what Paul does is he sets up 
governing authorities as being underneath of God. And Paul lived in a world where Rome, the Roman emperor, the Roman authorities, had set themselves up as God. And Paul is saying, all authority falls underneath God. All authority on heaven and earth comes underneath the reign and the realm of God. Paul's saying, look, these rulers, they don't have ultimate authority. And then I think what Paul would want to go to next, like if you were asking him to break down what he's saying, he'd first, like, it's, this subverse, it's subversive because they are not the ultimate authority. They fall underneath another authority, which they would say, no, we don't. But then Paul would say, look, ultimately, God is the judge, right? God is the one who raises leaders up and takes leaders down. If you read all throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, which Paul is an expert in the Hebrew Scriptures, his words here are not that far off. David is always saying, look, whoever the governing authority is, I have no right to remove that person because they've been placed in power by God. But the thread we th see throughout the Hebrew Scriptures is this idea that God brings down evil and corrupt leaders. Evil leaders, corrupt administrations, corrupt nations will fall. God will bring them to their knees. The biggest story, or the most prominent story, is of King Nebuchadnezzar, the, the, the emperor of Babylon, or the, the ruler of Babylon, right? God brings them literally to his knees where he is crawling and eating grass. And so Paul would say, look, when I look at the arc of history, at the end of the day, God will be the judge. And then that leads to Paul's ultimate concern, is Paul wants to keep the peace. Because Paul's main concern in life is spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. He believes that there is a new kingdom, a new way of living that is breaking into the present, and it will change everything. And right now, Paul just wants to keep the main thing the main thing, and he sees engaging with the government as a distraction. Because what Paul also knows, because remember, he was a chief rabbi, he was a Jewish leader before he became a Christian leader, and Paul knows that there are Jewish communities all throughout the Roman Empire who are chafing underneath the rule of the Roman Empire and who have tried to rise up against the governing authorities in every time it ends in violence or it ends with them being expelled from the city. And what Paul doesn't know, but I'm guessing the temperature is already turned up enough that he's beginning to see the handwriting on the wall, is 15 years after Paul writes these, these words, there's an uprising in Jerusalem that is so violent that the historian Josephus tells us a million people are slaughtered by the Roman government. A million Jews are slaughtered. And that it is so violent that blood literally, Josephus tells us, that blood literally runs like a river down the steps of the temple. And Jerusalem and Israel, as has ever been known, is obliterated. And honestly, until modern days. It's from 70 AD, from that uprising, until 1948. Israel ceased to exist, or whatever year it was. Israel ceased to exist as a country. So Paul sees, like, it's just, if we go up against the governing authorities and challenge the governing authorities, it's just not going to go well for us. Which leads to the, next, the fourth point. Rome... And the world up to that point does not know what a democracy is, right? Paul does not have, have this idea that you can go down to your local ballot box and vote out Nero or the Caesar, whoever the Caesar is at the time, which just as a side note, when he's writing this, the Caesar is like a fairly decent guy. And so Paul's like, we have a fairly decent ruler right now. Now he's not great, but I mean, let's just chill. 
Paul has no understanding that you can vote out the governing authorities. Right? They are thrust upon you. And ultimately, Paul believes that the gospel of Jesus is not hampered by any political institution or government. And this is what we see all throughout history, is that in moments of great persecution and great oppression, the church of Jesus Christ actually spreads more rapidly than it does during moments of freedom. The message of Jesus is inherently destabilizing to the powers of the wor this world and will spread no matter what is put in its place. And so Paul is trying to say in Romans 13, 1 through 7, and this is my best attempt to understand what he's doing. Paul's saying this, look, just keep the peace. Just respect the governing authorities. Don't try to turn, overthrow them. You will fail. Let me tell you about everyone else who's tried to do this and the ways that they fail. And so Paul's, the two things that, for him that are key is, number one, is he wants to keep the peace. And, and, and number two, he, he wants to find a way to spread the gospel. He wants to keep the peace and spread the gospel. That's what Paul cares about. But here's what's really interesting. In the verses preceding this and the verses after it, Paul has some really interesting comments on how we are to engage. And so if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Romans chapter 12 verse 9. So we're flipping back just a few verses prior to what we just read. Paul says this, love should be shown without pretending. Or another way of saying it, you should have authentic love. Right? Don't fake your love. For Paul, the baseline, for Jesus, the baseline, for the early church, the baseline was love. How do we show, how do we express love? Paul says, hate evil and hold to what is good. Or cling is the way it's often translated. Hate evil and cling to what is good. Love each other like members of your family. Be the best at showing honor to each other. Don't hesitate to be enthusiastic. Be on fire in the spirit as you serve the Lord. Be happy in your hope. I like that. Be happy in your hope. And stand your ground when you're in trouble and devote yourself to prayer. Paul's saying, look, don't roll over. Stand your ground. Right? Paul is not calling for submissiveness. Stand your ground, but at the same time, be happy in the hope you have. And for Paul, the hope is that the God who raised Jesus from the dead has your back. And he is redeeming and restoring all of creation. Paul has a long arc of history. Paul is not concerned and obsessed with today, with this moment, with what's on Twitter right now, with what's on CNN right now. Paul is saying, look, God is doing something bigger and grander than we can ever imagine. Be happy in your hope, but at the same time, stand your ground and then pray, right? Pray. Contribute to the needs of God's people and welcome strangers into your home. Bless people who harass you. Bless and don't curse them. This, this is, the, we could preach an entire sermon on this. How do we learn to bless those we disagree with? How do we learn to bless those who we see as a threat to what we hold true? How do we learn to bless that crazy uncle that says ridiculous stuff on Facebook? How do we stand our ground 
How do we hold our ground and bless those we disagree with? Be happy, verse 15, be happy with those who are happy and cry with those who are crying. Consider everyone is equal and don't think you're better than anyone else. This is one of the hardest things to do when you disagree with someone, particularly when the stakes are really high. It is easy to begin to think that you are better than another person, right? That you are morally superior. Paul says, look, don't think you're better than anyone else. Just, just stop with this idea that you somehow have some, are some way superior or have access to superior knowledge. Consider everyone as equal and don't think that you're better than anyone else. Instead, associate with people who have no status. Don't think you're so smart. Don't pay back anyone for their evil actions with evil actions, but show respect for what everyone else believes is good. And then here we return back to Paul's, like this thread for Paul. And if possible, to the best of your ability, live at peace with all people. Do not try to get revenge for yourself, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. Paul believes that all authority and all powers are underneath the reign of God, and God will ultimately bring judgment. He continues on. It is written, Revenge belongs to me. I will pay it back, says the Lord. Instead, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. And by doing this, you will burn coals or you will pile burning coals of fire upon his head. Don't be defeated by evil, but defeat evil with good. Paul said, I don't care how rough things get. I don't care how coarse the discourse becomes. I don't care what anyone else does. Do not fall to that level. Continue to cling to what is good. Continue to cling to what is good. It will win in the end of the day. For Paul, he believes that we are to respond with the same love and the same respect no matter who is in power, no matter what situation we find ourselves within. Because one of the things we have to remember, there are Christians around the globe today who are, who, are, who are following Jesus underneath oppressive powers. And the words of Paul and the words of Jesus are not lifted no matter how oppressive the regime might be. We are still called to love everyone. We are called to bless those who curse us. This is how we are to be as the people of God because we belong to a different kingdom. We belong to a different way of being and doing things in the world. Now, does this mean that you just roll over and do nothing? I believe that as people who live in a democracy, you have culpability into what happens in your nation state, right? We have a culpability because it is, we, we bear some responsibility. It doesn't mean that we are not supposed to resist. But it does mean that there is a way that we can resist and that we can interact and we can pursue justice that's loving and that blesses those we disagree with and that we don't lower ourselves or try to get even with people who cause us harm or say mean things. But we are happy in our hope as we stand our ground. And ultimately, we know that all powers and that all evil will have its rightful end because we have a hope that extends into the future and pulls us into that future. 
So that's how Paul precedes the passage on Romans 13, 1 through 7. That's what he says directly before it. Then he says the, the, the things that are kind of weird in Romans 13, 1 through 7. And then he returns back again to the idea of, of love. And he says this, don't be in debt to anyone except for the obligation to love each other. And whoever loves another person has fulfilled the law. The commandments, don't commit adultery and don't murder and don't steal, don't desire what others have or any of the other commandments are all summed up in one word. Love, or all summed up with this, you must love your neighbor as yourself. Which is interesting, right? Paul doesn't even say, right, it's summed up in love God and love neighbor. No, Paul says it is summed up in your love of neighbor because the way you judge how much you love God is by how much you love the person you like least. That's, the way you love your neighbor is the way you love God. I, sometimes I see people who think that they like, they're like, oh, I love God, I just hate everybody else. It doesn't really work that way. Love doesn't do anything wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is what fulfills the law. If you are looking for an ethical framework, if you are looking for a North Star, right, it is love. Love is the ethic. Love is the thing that pushes you. Love is the thing that pulls you forward. And so if I had like one thing to leave you with today, it would be this. It would be this question. What does love require? Now, what does love require when you see injustice being done in the world, when you see someone being mistreated? What does love require? But on the flip side, what does love require of you when interacting and when responding to and in engaging with those you disagree with? What does love require? Love is what we should be known for. The earliest Jesus followers, people who lived under oppressive regimes, regimes that were killing them, were known by the way that they loved everyone. But then we have all these questions. But what about, what, what about, but what about? Jesus is not a Republican. And Jesus is not a Democrat. Both parties... Both, all candidates are flawed. And as Jesus' followers, our hope is not in a political party or in a candidate or in a news source or whatever it is that you hope will lead us out of the wilderness. As followers of Jesus, we belong to a different kingdom. We have dual citizenship at best, but our ultimate allegiance is to the kingdom of God. And no matter who is in power, no matter who is our leader, we're not released from these three things. To love everyone, to pray for those in authority, and to bless those who curse us. We're not released from those, no matter how coarse things get. But, and this is key, our command to love, to pray, and to bless does not release us from a responsibility to do justice and to resist injustice, especially those of us who live in a democracy. But on the flip side, this is like my caution, particularly for those of you in DC who are so passionate about everything. I mean, people in DC, you are passionate about your coffee, you are passionate about your politics, you are passionate about your movies. I mean, every, you just are passionate about everything. We must approach a responsibility to do justice with humility and caution. You have a confirmation bias because you are human. You have a particular narrative and view of the world, and then you read sources that 
confirm your view of the world, and you weed out unintentionally sources that disagree with your view of the world. It's what humans do. And sometimes, in a, pol a polarized political climate, we end up freezing up because we become so consumed with our enemy that we lose sight of what's actually at stake. The focus becomes on those we disagree with rather than those who are impacted by injustice. We somehow, when we are particularly polarized, I think we think that we can litigate whatever the problem is on Facebook or on Twitter or on passive-aggressive comments or whatever it might be. But the kingdom of God, as, as citizens of God's kingdom, as followers of Jesus, we are called to engage in a different way. It doesn't mean you don't engage in politics, right? Like, there is a, like, engage to the best that you know how. Resist the best that you know how. But do it humbly. But also, don't allow yourself to become so caught up in the whirlwind of our current situation, in the polarization, that you allow your focus to simply be on those you disagree with instead of those who are, who are, um, who are being treated unjustly. Because my question is often when people are like going on about how upset they are about whatever situation, let's say it's the border crisis, right? Families being separated at the borders or how people are being treated. There's tons of churches and nonprofits that are working at the border trying to care for people. Are, are, how are you, are you supporting those? Or let's even like come back and pull back more micro. It is really easy to have our heartstrings tugged by a story we read in the New York Times by someone who's a really really powerful writer and, and like get so moved that, that there's this person is suffering this injustice you know halfway across the world but there are people in our own city who are suffering injustice there are kids who will go to bed tonight who don't know where their next meal come, will come from there are families in our city right now at this moment who are probably sitting around their dining room table trying to figure out how am I going to afford transportation to get to work this week and make rent and pay for food there, there are kids in our city who are desperate for a mentor, someone to invest some time and some energy in their lives. Now, am I saying we should not resist and we should not be engaged politically? No. But sometimes we become so fixated on feeling that the way we engage and the way we resist is simply by posting things on Facebook and doing, going to marches that we fail to engage with the people that God has placed in our path in our neighborhoods, that we can tangibly reach out and touch. But ultimately, we are driven by the values of a different kingdom. We belong to a kingdom of hope and a kingdom of peace and a kingdom of love. And our king calls us to love everyone, even those we disagree with. And there is a transformative power to love. And I don't know what tomorrow holds or next week or a year from now, or midterm elections, or whatever the things might be. But my ultimate hope does not rest in a party, or in a politician, or in midterm elections. But my ultimate hope rests in the God who raised Jesus from the dead. The God who brings down rulers and empires. My ultimate hope, and Paul's ultimate hope, rests in the King of kings. And so I went back through looking at Paul's writings and trying to find out, like, if Paul was going to give us a top 10 list 
of ways we should engage. I think this is what Paul would say. He'd say, be peaceable. Whatever you do, can you find a way to live at peace with other people? Right? Do you have to turn the rhetoric up quite that warm? Right? Find a way to disagree agreeably. Just be peaceful. Number two, welcome strangers. Welcome strangers. Number three, pray. Number four, stand your ground. Don't roll over. Number five, be happy in your hope. Number six, cling to what is good. This is like the thing, if I were going to underline something for myself, it would be this. Cling to what is good. There is so much negativity that we are fed that we sometimes begin to believe all there is is darkness. But I believe that no matter where, what our current climate is that we find ourselves within, that God's kingdom is springing up all around us. And there are, there are, there are, the light is breaking through. There is goodness around us. Cling to what is good. Consider everyone as equal. Don't think you're better than anybody else or smarter than anyone else. Bless those who harass you. Overcome evil with good. And love everyone. And if I were to condense it, you're like, that's too many. I can't do ten things. Here's the three things I'd leave you with. Love everyone. Ask yourself this question. Post this question to your mirror in your bathroom. What does love require? What does love require of me? Number two, bless those who, those who are rude, those who harass you, those who are just annoying. How do you bless that person? And number three, and this is where, this is where I kind of want to land the plane today. It's you need to pray. One of the things that God has really been speaking to me is like how are we to respond when we feel that there are, there are moments of turmoil? Is that you continue to preach the gospel. But you also, we need to pray. Because I believe that the challenges that we face at this current moment are much bigger than us. They're much bigger than simply powers of, of flesh and blood. Honestly, it's much bigger than even our nation state. Like, if you look globally, the things that we are facing are infecting the globe. And it's not all our fault. I believe that we are up against force, powers and principalities, forces beyond our control. There is a darkness in our world. There's a, there is a power of confusion, a power of division, a power of chaos. There is a power of self-delusion. And one of the things that Paul speaks about this beautifully, he talks about there are powers and principalities in this world, and the ways that we resist these powers and principalities is through the power of prayer. And I know some of you are like freaking out, right? Because like, I thought you were like, I don't know, the, you didn't talk about that stuff. And, and to be honest, like I, was, I told the first service, like I am not an overly spiritual person, and I then had to preface this because I realized I shouldn't have said that quite so quickly. What I'm trying to say is this. Like if you come to me with a problem, Chances are my first response isn't going to be, well, you should just pray more. You tell me your problem, and then I'm going to listen to what you did wrong, and I'm going to say, you, you really, that's your fault. You messed that thing up. Now, here's how you should fix it. No one comes to me for this anymore because I do that. But when they used to, right, I was like, it's your fault. You, you should fix it. But as I look forward into our future and look like, what, what is the thing that gets us out of the wilderness? The thing that God just keeps saying over and over is, is I need my people to humble themselves and to pray. 
And when you look throughout the history of the world, some of the, the greatest revivals, some of the greatest movements of God, some of the greatest movements of transformation, which you should know that anytime when you go back and study revival movements, they always lead to a movement of justice, a movement of equality. But those revival movements begin with prayer, and they often build out of times of great social unrest, right, for whatever reason, whether it's industrialization or changes that are happening. There are tectonic changes that are happening in our globe that provide an opportunity for the gospel of Jesus Christ, that provide an opportunity for justice, that provide an opportunity for transformation. But I believe that God wants his people to pray. And so my challenge to you is this, like, begin to find ways to develop a prayer life. Begin to ask that God would break your heart with something. Begin to ask that God would give you something specifically to pray for, to bring change to our world. Maybe as you're reading through the newspaper tomorrow, as you're reading through the paper, you might see like there is a family that is separated at the border that just catches your heart. And there's a photo. Cut that photo out. Put that picture up on your, your mirror. And just begin to pray for them every day. God, I just pray you'd bless them. I pray you'd bring peace. I pray you'd bring resolution. I pray that you'd move the hearts of politicians, that they would bring those families back together. And so I leave you with these three things. Love everyone. Bless those who annoy the crap out of you. And pray. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for these words of Paul, these difficult and frustrating words of Paul. But we also thank you for the witness of the church. We thank you for the words of Jesus. We thank you for this arc of Scripture that moves us towards justice. But also we thank you for this thread that runs throughout everything, that we as your people, we are called to live by a different way of living, that we are called to be known by our love, our love of everyone, those we agree with and those we disagree with. And I pray, God, that in this city that is so polarized and this world that is so divided, I pray that we may be known by our love for everyone. In Jesus' name, amen.